Hey, cat. It's my paper. I have my notes. Plant Necrotrop code transcription networks. Yeah. Cool. Nice spoiler, Tegan. <gasps> I think I should speed up all our genetics. They have to be. This one's way, good. Way faster. This is the one that you didn't do. Yeah. <laughs> that's the one that's just like a free song online. Yeah, I like the more upbeat stuff. Like. Dun, 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 dun. Hi. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Welcome to, to <laughs> Plants and Pipettes. The podcast. <laughs> it's very hot today. We're a little bit brain fried. It's um, yeah. been pretty hot the last couple of weeks in Berlin. And turns out that Germany is not really built for hot weather, I would say. No, like, not. None of my um, my office doesn't have air conditioning because it's it's facing the north, not the south. And apparently there's some legislation where... Unless it's it's not legislation. It's a rule that they made up. It's <laughs> I don't know, because my other friend was telling me that in his university, it's even worse because they have this north-south thing where... Um, Unfortunately, the people who built the building put it the wrong way around, so it's even worse. Like the offices, were, offices were all full, uh, supposed to face the back and supposed to face the north, away from the street, where there shouldn't be too much heat. But they accidentally put them facing the street and facing the south, so they get like all the sun. But because like it wasn't planned like that, they didn't have any intention to put any air conditioning in, so it's like a thousand times worse. Oh God. But yeah, I don't know. It's like one of the things. I don't know in Germany if it's true or not. But every time I say like this is ridiculous, like we need air conditioning. Like it's thirty degrees in my office. I really just I can't work productively. They're like, yeah, but it's it's a rule here. Like you can't have air conditioning. Yeah, and um, we always lobbied in our institute to get a pool, right? <laughs> I recently learned that the Max Planck Institute for Plant Breeding Research in Cologne has a pool. I think they don't have officially a pool, though, right? Isn't it like a loophole? I don't know. I, I I probably I will get them into trouble now. But <laughs> on Twitter, somebody shared like um, that they they were sitting chilling by the pool at this MPI in Cologne. Um, I think it might be. I mean, we have multiple like small fountains and stuff, which like the kids love when we have parties. The kids play inside them. And my boss was telling me that um, when you have these like public buildings, there's a certain percentage of money that has to be put aside to do art. So it's a huge amount of money. He said ten percent. That sounds like. It's really huge. It's a lot. Big fraction of the budget. It's a big fraction, especially when you're building like a, a multi-million dollar, like a, a hundreds of million dollar building. Yeah. Um, but that means that then maybe what they have is actually like a large fountain or like a large um, artistic pool. And then they just happen <laughs> to swim in there sometimes. Yeah. I, like the chlorine is representative. It's like, it's an artistic expression <laughs> of... Um, the killing something, of unwanted something. germs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I tried. I tried to find it, um, but it yeah, it looked pretty. Don't pretty ruin good. it for them. If they have got that, don't like. Yeah. Don't make it bad. I mean, also water features themselves are a bit strange because, like, half of I mean, more than half of the year they I have to be turned off, right? But it looks pretty pooly to it me. It looks like a pool. It looks like a public pool. And I'm so jealous. And I wrote them on Twitter. It's like, yeah, we lobbied for for a pool for years and we didn't get any. <laughs> In fairness, our lobbying for a pool was let's flood the courtyard. <laughs> it wasn't really like, let's put a pool. We're Desperate like, times. We're like, there's a hole here. Can we just like flood the hole? <laughs> and the other thing I, I recently read uh, according to or related to air cons is that um, there's now some people questioning whether or not it's really necessary to have aircon in the US because they're so prevalent that it's often running when it's not really necessary and it mm. is like a huge, um, extremely energy intensive. So you could argue that like the, the world is heating up, 
they're turning on more of the aircon they're using more energy it's heat, it's heating up the globe more it's sort of a feedback loop there um, it's pretty simplistic the, the, <laughs> it's this like argument. in slow in slow or motion i mean but, so definitely in australia we have this thing where there used to be a huge problem where everybody would um like turn their aircon on at 3.30. So people like parents would bring their kids back from school, get home and turn the aircon on. And because they didn't have it on all day, they would like turn it down to 18 degrees to like try and change the 45 degrees you have inside the house down to like something reasonable. And it just like would overload the grid. So like every every day at 3.30, like the power grid would just get flooded and like things would start to brown out. Like it was to the point where they said, hey guys, like please put your aircon on at like 27 or something for the whole day is better than having it like for three hours on 18 trying to like fix the mess that you've made <laughs> like, yeah and the second thing is i never had aircon at home because my parents refused to get aircon because they said exactly that you only need aircon when it's hot and therefore there should be solar powered aircon and until there's solar powered aircon we're not getting aircon because like in australia this should be and i don't yeah. know if it's possible but in, in my parents mind it's possible and therefore we were not allowed to have air conditioning so yeah i mean if we would have a better energy mix and not burn fossil fuels then it wouldn't be such a problem like if we would have renewable energy that would power the aircon you could argue that like energy wise it might not be the most efficient thing to do but at least you're not making uh, the, the entire world worse but if we just burn coal to cool down our flats, it's... I have to say also, like, it was a big win for my, my work in my university because I did have aircon. Um, it meant I would work longer in summer because I yeah, didn't exactly. want to go outside I, where I wanted hot. to say that too. Like, I, I recently heard that also from somebody um, that they, they worked in an insurance company or something. And now during the heat wave that we just had, yeah, they had nicely um, air-conned uh, offices. And so everybody stayed there until like eight, nine mm -hmm. in the evening instead of leaving at five or six yep. uh, because they just couldn't, stand the idea of going out in the heat um, my apartment is on the fourth floor and it is not cool up there. yeah like, i mean we also we have two two floors here in our castle <laughs> that we live in um in the west wing that we are now um yeah but also yeah you just notice like every time you go up the stairs you have like four degrees more um yeah so it's it's pretty hot and good thing is it will only get hotter yay <laughs> i mean it's it's the hottest summer now for uh, for the last 250 years but probably it's the coolest summer for the next 250 years. Oh, God. <laughs> no, I think we'll start getting those more extreme temperatures. Yeah, so yeah. maybe next summer we'll have like some sort of like mini ice storm or something. We'll like, have like 15 degrees all, all summer long. Like there was crazy hail in um, the south of Italy, like yep. at the end of last winter, right? Like these like big, um, like not a golf ball, bigger than a golf ball, like a, a orange small sized. balloon. Yeah, orange sized like hail. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's um, fun times we live in. <laughs> Somehow we always like return to like the, that dreaded topic. Um, so let's instead move over to this. It's the paper of the week. My paper this week is called Plant Necrotov Co-Transcriptome Networks Illuminate a Metabolic Battlefield. Um, and because it has such a nice title, it's from uh, Wei Zhang uh, from the lab of Daniel J. Klebenstein. Klebenstein? 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 I don't know. Dude, that's like a German name, right? But, uh, but he's from Copenhagen, and in the US it would be Klebenstein. In Germany it would be Kleben, Klebenstein. It could be in Denmark Klebenstein. I don't know. Um, We're sorry. We're sorry. It uh, depends where you're from and how you want your name to we pronounce. We respect you, even though we can't pronounce your name. Um but yeah, so this paper uh, looks at a battlefield, and that's why I, my introduction um, is a little bit militaristic. Um, so, yes, 
it there's what? yeah to because what they're looking at is the battlefield of a plant and a pathogen <laughs> and they try to figure out who is attacking how and what are the defense systems and so on so i i wrote like I thought about this as a real battlefield. Imagine you're like a neutral party looking at a battlefield and you s all you can see is sort of like the, the shells flying around and like the, the weapon weapons in use, but you don't know who's using them. Mm -hmm. And what the, the most straightforward thing to do is to just like try and look at the projectiles and the bombs or in plant speak, like the, the metabolites and the things that are exchanged and look at what's going on there. What mm -hmm. are the, the, the signals and um, the active ingredients? And when you do that, you can't really attribute them. You can't attribute if like a, a ROS is coming from the pathogen or if that's a defense mechanism mm -hmm. or if a signal is a signal from the plant trying to uh, like kickstart its defense machinery or if it's a fake signal coming from the pathogen trying to stop this defense ma machinery from happen happening and um so to understand like the weapons and the defense systems that both sides are using um, what you can do now instead of looking at the individual projectiles which are sort of the same from both sides i you can look at the manufacturing of those and in this system like the manufacturing happens close to the front lines so in the cells uh, adjacent to that battlefield and um, the manufacturing facilities they are very um, uh, now I'm missing the word uh, they're very uh, easy to identify because they are specific to the two sides right mm -hmm. like the manufacturing systems like the uh, genetic information and uh, more importantly the expression system like the expression of the RNAs and mm -hmm. plant RNAs look different from pathogen RNAs and so if you look at the RNAs that then later on make the weapons or defense systems um, they then you can understand who's using what mm -hmm. and this is pretty much what they did in the study so um, they looked at the transcriptomic di uh, data um, to figure out what's what's going on and so just the transcriptome like all of the mRNA expressed in the two species like yeah. the plant and, and the microbe and the cool thing is here that they did it at the uh, infection side so mm -hmm. they don't just use, don't just looked at the pathogen. So in this case, it's Botrytis uh, cinerea, which is a commonly used model organism for a fungus pathogen. Mm -hmm. And Arabidopsis is the plant system that they're looking at. Oh, beloved. Yeah. So usually you would just like look at the transcriptome from Arabidopsis, maybe under stress, and then on the transcriptome from this pathogen, this uh, B. cinerea. Um, and then try to identify things that are expressed at certain times. But here they infected Arabidopsis plants and then a couple of hours post-infection they started looking at the transcriptomic data. Um, but first I wanted to talk a little bit about like the defense system of uh, the plants. Um, they have, they in this paper they described it as a layered defense system. So they first have a molecular detection of the attack that mm -hmm. usually happens like at the front lines of the cells where they somehow figure out like someone's attacking here. And that then triggers syst uh, um, signal transductions. So local and systemic signals are then uh, emitted. So to first kickstart a response in the in the local cell, but also tell the entire plant, look, we have to do something. We're attacked. Something's going on here. And then as a third layer, there's the defense metabolites or proteins that are made by the plant. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing about this, I, I thought of like this layered system. I thought, ah, this is quite smart. This is like multiple layers, so it has redundancy. But no, it's like it's a sequential layer, mm -hmm. which means that it gives multiple points of attack for the pathogen. From a pathogen side of uh, point of view, um, you can have multiple points where when you stop a certain area, so if you stop the detection or the signals or the response, 
then you stop the entire thing and you can win over there. And so the pathogen tries then to utilize, um, sort of to hijack some things that the plant does, evade other things that it does, or then to straight up attack it. Mm-hmm. Um, so this could be things um, for the utilization. There are some some smart things like Pseudomonas syringiae, a bacterium. Um, they express a mimic of jasmonic acid which is a very common signaling mon- molecule. And that sort of... Inter- so it's like a plant hormone, which is, is used um, in defense against like different bugs and also insects and, and yeah. herbivores and everything, basically. And so the plant tries to kickstart its signaling there and signal to this within the cell and also to other cells, look, we're attacked, we have to do something. And um, there's this mimic of the signaling molecule that blocks or disrupts the signaling mm-hmm. pathway. It's a little bit like finding the radio frequency that your enemy uses and then just like blasting random noise on this frequency mm-hmm. so they can't use it anymore. Um, and uh, yeah, this is very common in in um, pathogens. And so this uh, uh, Botrytis cinerea um, is a necrotroph, which means it, f- it feasts on the dead bodies of its enemies. So it, like, it kills the plant and then uses the, meta- like, the dead plant matter to grow on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a very common pathogen. Like, it can attack many different species, um, uh, amongst which Arabidopsis, but also many other things. So it also has some relevant to like crop plants and things like that potentially. Yeah, it's definitely it's uh, it has. Um, let me just find the spot where they talk about the crop. Uh, um, the crop plants that they can attack, um, yeah, and they uh, are important in ecological systems, but also in agricultural settings. Um, that mm-hmm. in, it attacks uh, dicots, gymnospams, and even bryophytes. Where I have to admit, I'm not fully. It's mosses, or I think it's yeah. You can never remember which is which of those. Yeah, non-vascular plants: yeah. Uh, mosses, liverworts, and hornworts. So yeah, a pretty big range that it can attack. Um, which is also represented in its genetic makeup. So usually it's not just one uh, one genotype of this uh, fungus that attacks. It's uh, usually a mixture of several different genotypes that are uh, slightly different in their metabolism. So they can they, this is a sort of a fitness advantage for it because whatever defense system the plant has, there's likely some... Wait, is it different species or different... It's, sub- the, same or it's like the same species. Like different individuals with different like attack skills, basically. Yeah, so there, okay. there's a, a big variation in the genetic makeup of the individual members of the species, uh, they say. So uh, it's also then... So that works with your army idea. It's like you've got an army, all of people, but some of them are like cavalry, some of them are like foot soldiers, some of them are... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and uh, all of them together, then no matter what the defense system is, you sort of have the right guy in your team Mm -hmm. to overcome this defense system. And sort of the balance between the defense and the attack system then decides on a molecular level who's winning, uh, essentially. If the fungus overgrows the plant or if the plant manages to uh, fend off. Um, And yeah, some things that are used in an attack here are metabolites, small peptides or small RNAs to attack the plant. So these Mm -hmm. are all different ways of uh, going for it, but also um, sort of bigger attack vectors. I have, uh, for example, cell wall degrading enzymes that, mm-hmm. they, that the fungus expresses. It sort of eats away at the cell wall so it can, can then attack the cells itself. This um, is really literal imagery, isn't it? <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. It really, it really is here. Last week you had all like the literal names for the things, for the proteins and so on, and he's like very literal imagery of attack and defense. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, in this paper, they, they give a good overview over the different um, like defense and attack mechanisms and also that we understand some of it, like the gismonic acid one from the Pseudomonas bacterium. But most of it, we don't really fully understand on a molecular level what's going on. 
And that's a disadvantage for us because if we figure out how we can help the plant in their defense system, we can potentially make more resistant plants that can that are sort of um, strength more uh, stronger, strengthened in their ability to fight against uh, attackers. Yeah. So any of these these guys which affect crops obviously have a huge impact on food security. You you have loss of like millions of of dollars and of like yeah tons of crops. Yeah. And so the system of Arabidopsis and B. cinerea is a pretty um, common system to understand the plant-pathogen interaction. Um, and um, what is the... Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, because of we talked last week a little bit about this, the, the amount of work that we've been doing, so I very quickly put together my notes here, so I might fumble a little bit. Um, but yeah, so the point I already talked about, the genetic variation that is believed to be the reason for its uh, wide host range, because it's uh, very capable in adapting. And there's a key virulence mechanism, so a key mechanism, attack vector that it uses, and it's a phytotoxic secondary metabolite that's called sequ uh, the sesqui sesquiterpene botrydiol. <laughs> Luckily, the, the acronym for it is just BOT or BOT. Um, and then the polyketide bo bot botcinic acid, BOA, BOA. Um, so these two, BOT and BOA, are two attack vectors that um, the fungus can use to attack these plants. And um, yeah, so what they did then is, uh, as I said, they, they, they infested uh, or infected Arabidopsis with um, this fungus and then measured the genetic response there. And then what they did, the paper is mostly describing the bioinformatic pathway, so I can't really go into large details there because okay. this is really just not my st uh, strong suit, but they built networks of interaction. And the first thing they did is very basic co-expression networks. Um, so can you explain what a co-expression network is? Yeah, so it's basically, um, it's coming off this idea that if things work together in the same pathway, then hopefully you should see expression of the genes all at the same time or under the same conditions. So obviously in any organism, not all of the genes are activated all of the time. So for example, in humans, if you have certain things which help grow beard hair, that only comes on after puberty, after puberty. Or if you're a plant, there's times when you need to grow leaves, there's times when you need to grow roots, and there's times when you suddenly need to start making genes for flowers. Um, and so you, there's now a whole lot of publicly available data where people have done um, transcriptomics, so collected all of the mRNA that's expressed under just like thousands of different conditions. So plants grown under high salt, plants grown under low light, plants grown when they're very old or when they're very young. And now you can look across all those conditions and see which mRNA, mRNA are expressed at the same time or under the same conditions. And the idea is that this should tell us which of them are all kind of working together in a gang. Yeah. And they... Yeah, it's pretty much just correlating. So you know a couple, or what you can do then is that you know the function of a couple of these mRNA. And then if you find other things that correlate with them and also come up at similar um, time points or under similar conditions, um, then there's a chance that they have a similar function or at least a related function. Mm -hmm. um, and this is what they did here, that they looked at the, the way which mRNA came up um, uh, during the infection. Um, which correlated with the infection and they created a top 100 list and then just listing a couple of the genes that are coming up there. And in the top 20 of these positively correlated genes, there are all seven genes that inv are involved in this bot biosynthesis, so in this attack vector. Mm -hmm. 
Um, then they have uh, more than 30 genes um, encoding cell wall degrading enzymes. So this is all the genes, sorry, the transcripts from the point of view uh, yeah, of the fungus. Yeah, from the, the fungus. fungus. Yeah. yeah, yeah. sorry, that's important to say. Mm. Yeah, from the fungus. So these are, now they're looking just at the fungus. What's, what is the fungus doing as a sort of attack? And then later they were looking at what is the plant doing as a response. And then there are um, lesion-correlated genes that are sort of creating plant lesions. Mm-hmm. Um and then there are other uh, virulence genes that are already known, but they also have um, 37 in these top 100 genes that have no gene ontology term yet, which means that they're probably unknown virulence mechanisms. So they also figure out new things that we don't know yet. And this is a very classic setup. Like you have in the, your results section, you have a couple of things that you could like that you know already that are your positive controls. Yep. And then you can be more more certain that the other things that you see, that they are actually meaningful. Uh, unfortunately, they didn't go really into detail in this study. Um, what are these other 37 things? I guess that's a sort of classic follow-up material yeah, to now characterize the them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, then they used a co-transcriptome network from both of them and tried to figure out... Uh, uh, yeah, try to create these maps not only uh, from the lo- point of view from Arabidopsis and the point of view from the fungus, but to have a sort of a bigger network that includes both things to fi- figure out which genes are related to what other genes. So which Arabidopsis genes respond to the fungus genes wow. and, and uh, the other way around. And uh, How do they, do they have um, several different time points after infection or is it just one single time point? Oh, wait a minute. Um I think there is the paper. Uh, I think they used mostly. They didn't show any time courses in the in the okay, so result it's things. Point. So collection, growth, inoculation, and sampling. They okay, uh, not important. Yeah, I, too, I too guess, many. I words. guess not. I think I, I just. Th- I don't I, think there was a time no, course. No, no. I think I'm just asking you for something because I did a time course in my previous work, and I'm like, is there a time course? I want there to be a time course. I mean, um, it would be interesting. I'm sure to if they had done course. it, you would have remembered it. But no, I was just thinking about it because um, when you're looking at correlation between the infector and the infectee, usually there's going to be a bit of a lag. So like the infector like puts his weaponry and then you know 10 minutes later or one hour later or depending on the timing so i was wondering if you have to like then when you're looking for correlation you have to factor in this kind of delay if you're doing a time course but if you're not doing a time course you don't have to worry about any of this delay stuff yeah no they um measured just once 16 Uh hours post-infection okay so um yeah so just from that they, they they built their network and obviously it would be very interesting to see a time course if does that change what like what is the time frame when is what coming up and so on um but yeah in this study they just did uh many uh, large networks and this is also where i sort of lost a little bit um the the details there because um these networks they t- become very complicated and they started saying something about which um nodes in the network which areas are more or less uh, interconnected mm-hmm. um but in total, what they could find, sort of summing up um, these results, that they could find four networks in Arabidopsis, uh, where one of them was a defense network that was uh, uh, activated in response to that, and the other two are linked to uh, different aspects of photosynthesis. And uh, the fourth network that they could find in the transcript is related to cell division. So from the plant side, it seems to be um, very... Uh, what's the word like it's not too complicated and not too many different networks that get activated they have like mm-hmm. one 
one major network that gets activated. While on the other hand, on the fungus side, there's 10 different uh, networks that are generated um, with different sizes, with um, the, the largest uh, networks that are activated encode for genes of attack vectors that we already know. By size, you mean like how many genes how are many in that genes network? In yeah, that, okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are some smaller networks there in the range from five to 10 genes that are interconnected um, where we don't know what they do yet. Mm -hmm. So the the plant has sort of one major defense strategy that gets activated. Um, I unfortunately forgot how large that network is from, from Arabidopsis. Oh, nice. okay. But um, then on the fungus, there has like 10 different networks that can be distinct that or that uh, identified distinctly. So is that then this idea of having like different mechanisms, like lots of different ways to get around the defenses? So you've got like multiple attack points. Is that yeah. kind of what? Yeah. Yeah, because some of them are um, uh, the key virulence mechanisms that we already know, the the, the bot and boa thing. Um, but there's also then some that are um, related to these these cell wall degrading enzymes. And then again, there's some that we don't know yet what they do. Um, so all of that. Together, they could uh, create the first map of the plant defenses system um, and the the pathogen attack vector. And now the next thing they they mentioned there that they didn't do yet, but what is a, a sort of logical follow up to this is figuring out if the plant has just like one response to all attacks, mm -hmm. or if that's a specific attack to this specific pathogen, to this specific fungus. Um, they didn't do that here yet, but they they express it. Now, with the, uh, with the establishment of this method, um, they can now look at more uh, complicated things, mm -hmm. um, like ha having several different uh, infecting pathogens and then figuring out, yeah, do they react differently or do they always sort of uh, fire up the same machinery? And what if you have combinations? I think that's one of the, the big problems of going into, going from this kind of lab work, which is very informative, but then going into the real world where you have not just one thing attacking, but you have like hundreds of things attacking at the same time and also dealing with changes in the world. So which yeah. also need, mean you need to regulate different genes for those changes. Yeah. And I think that's something where um people like want to make plants which are stronger and more resistant to stresses. But often if you overexpress um, these protective mechanisms, you just end up with very slow growing plants because it's always a trade-off. So you can be like constantly prepared for attack, but that means you're spending always your energy on these preparations. You're spending a lot of your money on, on war, on weaponry, and then you're not spending that money on growth and, and making yeah. um, things. So understanding better these networks means that we can better understand how to find the balance where we still get maximal plant growth, but grow plants that don't suddenly die the second they get yeah. infected. For example, we could, once we go also a little bit into time courses, we could find the things that um, sort of delay the response. And if we just shorten this time, we might get plants that are quicker in reacting, but they don't constantly make a defense mm -hmm. metabolite, uh, which is a common thing that we like we tend to do usually, right? We tend to just overexpress a metabolite yeah. and it's always on and yeah, it's it's pretty wasteful for the plant and sometimes even like harming the plant itself like sometimes also the toxicity of, of metabolites is fine-tuned so it doesn't just doesn't harm the plant but kills a yeah. pathogen yeah and there's also i mean kind of what you mentioned at the start with the pseudomonas so i think the reason that it can use this imitation of jasmonic acid is because there's actually um feedback between um two phytohormones so jasmonic acid is one of them and there's also salicylic acid 
And depending on the type of thing that's attacking, like if it's a herbivore or if it's a bacteria or it's a bug, these two different things are involved in different ways, but they also, um, they're a bit antagonistic to each other. So they kind of regulate each other as well. So I think that by making this fake jasmonic acid, it might actually be helping regulate against the cell. I'm guessing this, I'm not a super yeah. expert, but so... Also, if you overexpress certain elements, you can actually make the plant weaker by having this feedback on, for example, the other phytohormones and make it like, okay, now it's completely protected against Pseudomonas, but now a caterpillar is going to basically look at it sideways and it's going to like crumble to <laughs> dust. Yeah. So this is another another factor. Yeah, that's why it's so important to have this, this mapping work where even if the map itself doesn't tell you immediately what's going on, um, you can use then that map to specifically probe in certain uh, directions that you wouldn't think of beforehand and that's why i found this quite interesting this paper um although yeah the bioinformatics were quite hard for to understand for me but it's always i i like to to look into areas that i usually don't look into so uh, yeah it was quite interesting to see that you can build these large networks now cross species and not mm. just within a species i like that there's a major um link to the plastid and also to photosystem one like this is something where I mean, the the role of reactive oxygen species maybe coming from photosynthesis, but also maybe having to change photosynthesis to get like certain products or more energy. This is kind of an interesting side factor that I'm interested. I mean, it's yeah. my personal research, um, but also, I mean, apart from the defense, we also always talk about um, trying to improve, improve photosynthesis and change these factors. And I mean... I always like things that show how interconnected everything is. So, hey, you might manipulate photosynthesis, but you might end up changing something to do with how well a plant can deal with this, what is it, botrysis infection. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, that's that was my paper. Woo! And now, let me just switch over to here. My favorite plant. Yeah, so it's my favorite plant of the week. Um, and today I'm talking about Rhizanthella, more specifically Rhizanthella gardneri. Um, these are actually, Rhizanthella is a genus of three species, um, which are all orchids. And they've actually come under a little bit of um, popularity in the last couple of weeks. I saw an article on Plantae, which was following um, a report in a fairly new journal. Um, let me see if I can find it. Dun, 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 dun. It's um, from the new phytologist group. There's Plants, People and Planet. Um, and this is a new open access journal. And they have a section called Flora Obscura where they talk about like weird mm. plants. And, and this is quite, seems quite cool. I think they only released, they've only released two volumes, I think so far. Um, but I was having a look and they seem to do some kind of interesting stuff. Um, so they put a, a kind of summary article called Rhizanthella Orchids Unseen. Um, it's by Thorogood et al. You should definitely go and check that up. We'll put the link in the show notes. Um, but there was also something on the Plante um, Facebook page. And I was then looking further into it. And um, in defense of plants, this really awesome um, botany-based um, podcast and website has an article from back in 2016 about these guys. So... What makes them so cool is that they're underground orchids. I think they're one of the only known species which basically has its whole life underground as mm -hmm. a flowering plant. Um, they flower underground even, so the the tips of the, the um, not the flower itself, but kind of the outside like petal-like structures kind of come out of the soil, but even under the leaf litter. Um, so they're completely impossible to find. 
Um, so we don't know how many of them are. We're pretty sure that all of them are endangered. Um, there's only like six known populations, or I think, of this um, uh, guard gardenery um, species in 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 my my country in Australia in the southwest region actually of Australia, um, and their, their life is basically a mystery because of this. We know that they're parasitic. Yeah, exactly. So they must be parasitic, parasitic. because they can't do photosynthesis underground. Exactly. Um, they're tiny little plants, which basically are nothing of a plant. They have a small stem connecting a flower to the hyphae of fungi. They basically are lazy as anything. And actually I came across this plant many, many years ago because my old supervisor was um, a Brit who had come to Australia and he really loved the different orchid species that we have in Australia. So we have a lot of endemic species, especially in, in my region, which is like the Southwest. It's actually a, a biodiversity hotspot where we have a lot of these endemic species. Um, and he was in love with this guy because it, it's it's so rare, it's so special to see it in nature. It's super unique, but also it has one of probably the, if not one of the smallest chloroplast genomes or plastid genomes that's been mm -hmm. described in plants. So basically, which is no surprise for yeah. <laughs> for a guy who doesn't have to do photosynthesis. Why would they keep photosynthetic genes around? Yeah, and I think like a lot of plants which are um, parasitic, they're they're only hemiparasitic. They're partially parasitic, so they still like keep the ability to photosynthesize. The ones that are fully parasitic. They still do other things with their chloroplasts. So they're still making fatty acids and things like this. This guy seems to be super lazy. So I think I'll try and see what the number is. It's like it would be interesting to see what's left in the in the genome, the chloroplast. Yeah. So there's also this is um, a really cool paper which is from um, my old working group before I got there. Um, it's Delanoy et al. in 2011, and it basically only has 20 um, proteins plus a couple of rRNA and tRNAs. So a total of like 33 genes. And just for a reference, usually it's about 120 for most plastid genomes. So they've basically got rid of everything. Um, Is the nuclear genome sequence? Like, do we know if they move to the nuclear genome? Uh, I'm not sure, actually. Um, I don't, I, at the point of this paper, I don't think it was, but I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure now. Um, I, mean, so, I imagine it must be also very hard to to grow this in a lab oh i think you can't grow it in the lab and i think i mean they're incredibly protected so i'm not even sure what the yeah no um up until i think 2018 they didn't even know what was responsible for pollinating it because it's completely bizarre that it's it's growing underground um and now they found out that there's probably a few different things but one of them is termites and again it's it's probably the only flowering plant that is is um pollinated by termites because termites don't usually do that um yeah, so it's just what a weird plant. Yeah, it, it it's it makes it's very fragrant, fragrant. So I guess even though people can't or pollinators can't see it, they can at least smell it, and that's how they they find this underground plant. Um, and then it has a lot of other things which basically make it very tricky for it to make offspring. I mean, it also has seeds which take six months to mature. Um, <laughs> obviously, it relies. Like it doesn't even want to exist. It doesn't really want to, but it's it's really beautiful. So yeah. um, we'll put some, I'll show a yarm now. It's like this cute little um, yeah. pink guy that pokes out of the soil, but we'll put some pictures in the show notes as well. Um, but it's basically just like slightly albino, pinky albino looking flower stalk that's trapped underground. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, yeah. It looks like a, almost like a regular flower, but it's yeah, it's in the ground. The stem is completely white, and it has this weird like spiky, spike-looking uh, structures going up there. It's a bit like a tulip, like yeah, 
bit tulipy. Like a weird tiny underground tulip. Yeah, but it basically has the stalk and some sort of tubery thing, and then it's just eating everything out of the um, the fungus. I, I like it. I have to respect its laziness. Um, yeah. And it's super rare. The, the The real problem is that it's it's clearly rare. It's clearly endangered, these species, but we actually don't know how much because they're impossible to find. So it's a bit of a um, conundrum for conservationists to know what to do with it. But yeah. I like it. It's very special. Nice. Yeah. This is where the Lots of jingle work from this summer break. Um, yeah, my first uh, thing for, for fun stuff is uh, actually almost related to what you were just presenting because um, to the or to the problem of uh, identifying and finding these species and figuring out how many are there uh, where are there and so on um, there is an on science mag there has been an article um, last month uh, about a hundred million DNA a hundred million dollar DNA barcode project uh, where they try to aim to discover two million new species mm-hmm. um, this is a, a project where Yeah, they try to go out in the field and uh, select samples, and then instead of usually when you f- you find a new sp- thing like a, an insect or a plant or an animal, you have to visually describe them and then figure out from a large catalog is it new or is it not, and does it belong to some of them? And mm-hmm. like especially with insects, it's extremely hard to do because then they also go to like different s- phases during their life. So even though it might be already described, it looks now different, or even though it's it's new it looks similar to a weird thing weird other thing so it's really hard to identify these species and then to really assess the biodiversity and here in this article they say um that the uh, estimate is that we have between 8.7 million and 20 million kinds of plants animals and fungi but we only know 1.8 million of them so there's a massive potential Mm -hmm. of species that we just don't know yet and um in this in in this project Uh, they want to go out and take these samples and then do DNA barcoding on them on the mitochondrial DNA. And they could show already in the past that this is an extremely um, uh, potent method of fingerprinting these Mm -hmm. species. And although species might have multiple mitochondrial DNA fingerprints, still the set of these fingerprints is uh, specific to that species. And um, what they did already is that they... Um, set up some insect traps and then just from one trap they uh, took uh, I think what did they say here they uh, one third of the traps whole of insects about one eight thousand seven hundred in all now I don't know if eight thousand seven hundred was all of the insects that they catched uh, that they caught or eight thousand seven hundred was the ones that they sampled um, but there they they found six hundred fifty a uh, species of a special tiny fly that's super hard to identify and i found 650 distinct species from that just in this one um try and now they want to go around the globe and do that way more often but wait are they are they visually looking at those or just like blending everything and then looking at the dna um that's actually i don't know uh, if they take individual samples uh, extract dna and then measure that or if they just do like a big blend and then see of all the mixes but judging from the fact that they could be multiple mitochondrial fingerprints for one species i guess they must take individual samples and i think i've that. seen stuff with with soil science where you can just like kind of grab some soil and then like basically dna the soil to see what like microorganisms are in there and i'm yeah. not sure how i don't know what the quality of that is these days i guess it's getting better every day but i'm not really sure yeah there i don't know 
Um, yeah, that, I don't know if they just do a bulk or if they do individual sampling. But what they're using now is this cool new nanopore um, sequencing me method. Mm -hmm. um, there's, uh, I don't know if, if you, you, you guys listening have, have ever seen it. It's like a tiny machine. It's like roughly the size of a smartphone. And then you put like, a f it's called a flow cell in it. And with that, you have the, the, the isolated DNA go through like a, a nano sized pore. And then electrical signals are given off based on the, the DNA sequence that goes through it. And with that, it's super cheap to sequence a lot of uh, samples. I mean, the pro is that you can get these really long reads. So most sequencing makes like reads of a couple of hundred base pairs. And this should be able to just like keep on reading for a much longer time. The very big con is that it's very inaccurate. Yeah, like inaccurate in standards of doing like whole genome sequencing where it becomes a problem. Mm -hmm. um, but that's why they use these like mitochondrial fingerprints uh, where it doesn't matter as much to have like this, the, the sort of the misreads in there. Mm. So the nanopore is, yeah, it's problematic to build like whole genomes from it. Then you need many replicates to be sure that to sort of statistically get rid of the, the mistakes. And there are other methods that are like orders of magnitude more precise. Um, but for this thing, um, these can technically, like right now, they're still sending the samples to a lab to uh, to, to mm -hmm. do that. But it, they they propose it to just take the, the sequencer into the field, like into the jungles, into the forests, wherever they sample um, species, and then sort of have on-location DNA extraction um, sequencing and then analysis on the machines there. Which is, uh, I find it pretty amazing uh, thinking that like 10, 20 years ago, like getting one genome sequence or just like one DNA read was already quite a feat and mm. quite expensive. And now they estimate here that it will cost around a dollar per sample, including the isolation of the DNA to get like this mitochondrial fingerprint uh, to identify the species. One dollar. One dollar per wow. sample. Mm -hmm. I guess I must like multiplex it somehow. And, yeah, but, but still. still a dollar. A dollar, yeah. I could do that. I could afford that. Yeah. Very cool. Um, I have something which is a, a more of a discussion piece, um, which I can recommend you should go and read. It's an essay slash opinion from Undark. Um, and the question is, are bioplastics better for the environment? And the answer is, it's complicated. So yeah. um, it's actually something we've been looking into a bit recently. So in our office, we have this um, Nest Cafe capsule machine. And I was always a little bit funny about using it because I thought, oh, it's it's like kind of a shitty way to do things everything's in aluminium like maybe it's not very doesn't seem very environmentally friendly to have this kind of single packaging use of coffee I'd rather have like a bag of beans and like use that um, and then recently I got an advertisement on um, Instagram or something which was like these new capsules which are made from this um, organic or not organic um, compostable plastic and I thought let's try that maybe if it's like good co coffee it's, it's worth it going to that but then I started looking into it and trying to find out which of them is actually better because although aluminium is it's terrible if you throw it in the bin, aluminium can be recycled. And if you have the right recycling machinery, you can recover a lot of that aluminium and then it gets, it gets used again. And of course you use energy and you use water when you try and recycle things, but that might be better than putting something which is um, even a recyclable plastic into the dump. And the reason of that is because these these recyclable plastics, um, these bioplastics can actually take still a lot of time to break down. Yeah. And if things do break down in the dump, that's actually not great. So having things in like a, a waste pile, you actually don't want them to break down because when they start breaking down, they start releasing gases. So there's there's pros and cons if you if you recycle it properly it, it's it can break down that can be good otherwise it, it might get burned or it might go in a dump so maybe it's not better than aluminium where you're actually putting it back into the system 
And we tried to find some information on this and it was pretty hard to find information because basically everything that's available comes from the companies that are producing the different capsules. And of course, they all tell you that theirs is the best. And in the end, we think that probably the the aluminium might actually be better than than yeah. the, the plastic. Um, if anybody has some information about this, which is more I, from an independent source, I would love to hear it. Like, yeah, there's actually a pretty good source to start looking. There's a there's a Plastisphere podcast, a podcast that I already quite like. Um, it's done by Anja Krieger, um, and she, uh, in in her podcast she explores the world of plastics from mm-hmm. very different um, angles. And in a recent episode that just came out, I think a week or two ago, she talks about bioplastics mm-hmm. and what it actually means. Um, and the summary it's complicated it's absolutely accurate because um, bioplastics can mean many different things there can be like conventional plastics made from biomaterials that's exactly the point of the article the first thing is that the term bioplastic in itself is not defined well enough and this is this is the problem we have all over when you come with things like organic or with like fair farming unless it's really a certified term where there's like a, a legal definition it can often mean multiple different things which are not precise. And yeah. and so bioplastics, it can mean plastics made from biological material and they might be made from biological materials, but they might not be biodegradable. Yeah, they're really just all. standard PET. You can make that from renewable sources instead of oil. Or they could mean biodegradable plastics. And also biodegradable biodegradable could mean many different things. It could mean that in an industrial composter, you can break them down. Yep. It could mean they break down like quicker than conventional plastics, but it's still in the range of like 50 years or more. Yep. And also it could mean that they break down, but they sort of just disintegrate into microplastics and not really into sort of chemical compounds that can be then used in other metabolic pathways. So that was definitely one of the things we understood from from the the biodegradable plastics that we were looking at with the the coffee um, capsules we had the feeling that they could be broken down if you had the right composting this um like proper large-scale composting but we probably couldn't get access to that in berlin because um you couldn't put them in the bio waste it's not the right kind of composting and therefore you would just have to put them in the trash and therefore you wouldn't actually have any of the benefits of of the breakdown so in a different system they could be superior to the aluminium but we came to the opinion that in the current setup we have, they're actually worse because they will just go into the dump in the end. And uh, um, like in a worst case, they they present some form of greenwashing, right? You feel like you're doing something <laughs> eco-friendly, yep. but you're absolutely not. Yes. And if you then also do moral licensing, you're making it like twice as bad by... Well, I definitely, I was not drinking this coffee because I was like, oh, I don't know how I feel about the single usage. And if I'm like, then, oh, it's okay, I should just use as many of them. I mean, this yeah. is the opposite of good, right? Yeah. This is definitely... And so you should really check out the podcast episode from Plastosphere. It's I I'm so I really Plastosphere by Anya Anya Krieger. Okay, we'll put the link we'll on the website. We put the link down that there, but if you if you search for Plastosphere, uh, you also find it. And I listened to the Utopia, the Biosphere. What was it called? Nearly there or something like uh, this. Um, uh, nice try. Nice try. This was really. I listened to the Biosphere one last week. It was super good. So I, yeah. I can now also recommend you go and listen to those that podcast. Yeah, and the whole Plastosphere podcast. It's it's uh, it's an independent production. It's really well done, and it covers so many points and really goes into the the yeah comp- difficulties of of thinking about plastics because they are not just purely bad. Like mm-hmm. it's generally. Um, like it was an advantage for us as a society to develop plastics because like they're much lighter they are more like the the resistance that they have to towards degradation is also a big plus mm-hmm. and um, yeah something else that's like tangentially related to this is uh, I recently read that um, like wrapping food in plastics um, is not as like it, ha- it is problematic in, in, a, uh, in terms of trash and waste 
But in terms of food preservation, it was a big step forward. Mm-hmm. Now that like wrapping cucumbers in plastic, we like I always am annoyed by that. I always think like, why is the cucumber that has a peel already? Why is that in plastic? But it just increases the shelf life. It reduces food waste by wrapping them in plastic on the field, and then it can take a week longer until I eat it or even mm-hmm. two. Um, but still, the, then in the end, I have plastic waste. And now there's a new um, technology being developed where they um, spray um, a natural, I, now I have to get it right, it's like a, a carbohydrate, but it's not starch, but it's a related thing that you can spray on apples and other, on, and grapes, for example. And um, then it creates sort of an edible shield around it. Mm-hmm. And it's a biodegradable, edible, tasteless shield, um, but it, it also increases the shelf life of things. Um, and this is a new t- technology that's it's just being sort of introduced into the market. And depending on customer um, uh, reactions to this, we might see this now more or less in, in the future. But this is a way to sort of reduce the plastic in foods um, and still have the advantage of not ha- of having it rot a little bit later. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I can I didn't write down the link yet because I just remembered it now. But uh, no, no, we can put it onto the show notes. Yeah, we will put the link there to. Um, the preserva- preservatives. Okay, go go on for the final fun fact about cats. No, I, f- I have a rant. Um, I can <laughs> make it. I can I can make it short, and then we have the the cat fact. Okay. Um, the the rant is. Um, I'm a little bit annoyed at about overselling stories in papers, um, where people like they do basic research and they do good good and solid research, but then they write things about like how it will end world hunger or it will hey, be wait, perfect. Wait, wait, wait. To- it's not that they write things about it; it's that other parties write things about it. No, usually. sometimes it's in the introductions or it's in the in the abstracts, and the, like the last sentence of the abstract is like, "Yeah, this will uh, be a big advantage towards uh, solving uh, like adapting plants to the climate crisis," mm-hmm. and. Um, like they usually say this could be though they don't say this will be yeah but the like the but it could be there's a lot of uh, excitement often in these papers or you find it more and more and while I think it's very good to be excited about your research and it's good to to communicate why it's important that we do this research I think overselling it might actually be detrimental and like I came to this through uh, through a tweet where somebody said that the the biggest downside of this that they um, they experience is when you are sort of more modest about your research and sort of more honest or more like grounded and say like look this is cool research that we did but we won't sol- solve the climate crisis with our research mm. that they get told that their stuff is not exciting enough or not novel enough by by reviewers and mm. when they start overselling it then reviewers are getting interested and saying like oh yeah this is this, this can be published and this is this is a downside like this is a problem for for research like what would what i would want is um a publishing practice where we, we value all results like the big and the small results and like the positive and the negatives i mean we talked about negative results in the past mm-hmm. how important it is to include them um, yeah, this is an economics question. I would say I, I would say it's a natural response to an economy where you need to show a, the the immediate value of research, and therefore the research has more value if it's definitely applied and something that can definitely solve a problem very soon. So yeah, yeah. And I think wh- when it stays within the scientific system, it's sort of something we can all like take part in. We say, okay, it's just it's just the rules of the game. You have to upsell your shit, and then it will get accepted. But I think the bigger problem that I see is when it leeches outside. Like if we always write our press releases, if we write our introductions, our abstracts in a way that it sounds uh, like we can end world hunger and we can end the climate crisis and we can cure cancer, and then we don't people might eventually wonder like research is promising all these things all the time 
and mm. it's not coming like people are still dying of cancer and we still have the cri climate crisis and so on and so on and i think if people start questioning research because it's oversold because of the internal mechanisms then they might question other things as well and it leads to a sort of um a dangerous science skepticism where they're like look they constantly promise me this thing that they will solve it and it's still not solved yeah but again again like i think you're in this issue the general issue of um the problem with science is it's never black and white. It's never going to be the solution to everything. And this is like the, the problem of the left as well, where you can't say, you can't speak in absolute terms, but you have to say something powerful to make people care. And I, I'm i not sure that that's even a problem of the system. It might, it might be just a human nature thing, right? Like people yeah. can only, we can only care about a given amount of things in a certain time. And you have to tell people why they should care about your thing. And of course, no, not everybody can be interested or be educated in your topic and therefore you have to tell them why even though they don't have an interest or education in your field it's it's still important and then you have to have some importance and this can be difficult to communicate and usually it's four or five steps removed from what you're actually doing but yeah i, I can totally see to like putting it in context and giving perspectives and so on like in in e-life for example they have this like digest section and i think mm. in the plant cell there's also a section where they have like an in brief or like a small little block that they publish with the paper where it sort of puts it in a, in a larger perspective um but this i don't consider overselling i think this is extremely important to do that but when you have like good solid research but you just like figure out a tiny part in the in the whole system but then you write somewhere in your abstract that this will lead us to a more safe food supply then but i don't think that is oversell i think that's saying the reason you should care about the the research is because it has this potential and if we don't have this research we won't get to point b and it's not that you with point a you'll definitely get to point b but it's, it is probably the other way around that if you don't have point a we'll never get to point b and as somebody who does basic research, I think it's kind of important to remind people of that. Like, I yeah. study how chloroplasts get formed, the biogenesis of chloroplast. And to be honest, it's it's very basic stuff. I'm not trying to manipulate photosynthesis. I'm not trying to make C4 um, crop plants at the moment. My stuff is very, very basic, and it's just understanding gene expression. And if I tell that to somebody, they say, well, why the hell should I care about it? And I can say, well... If you don't understand gene expression, then you can't manipulate photosynthesis in the future because you don't know how to manipulate it. So I'm giving you basic tools. And yeah. why we might want to ma manipulate photosynthesis is that we might be able to improve crops and feed the world. But, but would you say that your research helps to feed the world immediately? Like, would you I can write say like without, in your abstract? I would say without my research, you won't be able to get these improvements. I could say, and I mean... The reality is you have to tell people while they're okay, especially if you want to communicate with the public. You can't just expect them, you can't just say to them yeah, like... no, absolutely. But yeah. you can't just say like, hey, you should know, you should know about chloroplasts because chloroplasts are interesting. That's yeah, I, I, I absolutely agree that we have to like relate things to things people know and we also have to like show where it ties in into bigger problems. Um, it's just, it's... Uh, I got this idea from the tweet where they were like, look, reviewers reject stuff because like we are constantly in this like hype cycle of of our own research and it's not always like justified to hype this as much. And I find, yeah, I, I find it when I read uh, press press stuff or like things uh, directed to, to the society from within research and then it's often not the researchers themselves and it's people like me like science communication people um, who absolutely oversell everything so that's what I find I find that usually in papers they put as like the final statement this could be interesting because it had could have implications for global yeah. climate change and that's the way they say it. and it's actually 
it's usually quite hyped the link but it's actually a neutral statement and it said it could be there's a potential and they're very mild so of course they want to give you the idea that they could have a lot of significance in the community yep. but they don't lie about things the problem is that then a news um a paper or, or some 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 reporter then says climate change could be fixed with this paper and the the authors never said this and the people who published it the peer reviewers never agreed on this either it's a, a complete misinterpretation yeah. by the science communicator so i actually i don't agree with you on this i think like in the papers it's usually quite like carefully worded that they usually say there is this potential and then as as any reader who does it in a kind of objective way, you can say, okay, they're saying potential, they're not saying you can do this. And it's only when it gets misquoted when people say, new plants will cure cancer or what, I mean, this is, I'm now mixing genres, but. I mean, it exists, like they find like some anti-cancer drug related metabolite and then it's Axel, an anti-cancer, yeah, yeah. Yeah, sure, but I mean, I, yeah, I think people do need to explain to the public why their science is important. Yeah. I agree. I on think that. they just have to be, but I don't. I don't see it happening that much in publications. I definitely see, like, I do see authors saying that their their work is more interesting than it is potentially, but in a way that I think it's your fault if you misinterpret it because they always use. I mean, they they tend to use these words like probably or or likely yeah. or, and then you have to know how to read these words. Maybe that's a, that's an education issue. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I, I see it happen mostly where it's the article is fine, but once it gets to the mainstream, it becomes a bit blown out of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely agree. Like the problem is way more often in the science communication field than it is in the in the actual authors of the research papers. Um, that's that's absolutely true. Uh, I try to find now. I can't find now the the tweet quickly that I um, did. I bookmark it. But I mean, it is part of another conversation about the idea that if we keep on, um, as scientists keep on saying, we're going to solve this and we're going to solve that, it also comes back to this kind of licensing thing, this idea of um, the, the wizard and the prophet, this idea that people start to believe that science can just solve all of their problems and they should make no efforts yeah. with like solving things themselves. They're like, oh, we can just like throw things in the ocean for the next 20 years and then some scientists will work out a way to get stuff out of the ocean. And this this is problematic, I do agree. Um I'm not sure if the two the two ideas are particularly linked in my mind. I think um, <laughs> there's some there's some mentality issues that <laughs> yeah. are separate, like from this. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um. Um. Just to the the tweet that sparked it all is from the Tan Subflap uh, from the University of uh, British Columbia, and they say uh, an an unfortunate consequence of the arms race of scientists overhyping their work is that those manuscripts now written in cautious and honest way, acknowledging previous findings and taking care not to oversell, are often editorially rejected for and then in quotes not being very exciting or novel. Yeah. And this sort of sparked my thing, but it's true. Like I don't have the 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 full like like insight and. It's true that in many papers they are way more careful about stating it and it's then downstream where it gets oversold. Yeah, and I would say the problem is then with the peer review process, like it's the job of the editors to say, you can, this is good scientists, this is good science, but this is an overstatement. And mm -hmm. I actually, as part of a job interview, I recently had an exercise where I had to, um, no, actually it was part of a conference preparation. I had to review a manuscript. And part of this was like going through and saying, this statement is not supported by the evidence they have. This what they've said here that they have correlation and therefore causation, for example, like this is not yeah. 
this is not true necessarily given the research that they've shown. So this is, for me, a breakdown of the, the peer review process. Somebody yeah. should be saying... And I mean, that's also one of the reasons we have peer review because often the people who are reviewing you are people in your field who are somehow your competitors as well, uh, competitors as well as your co-workers. So they also have to work to keep the tone down that their field stays mm. realistic and man- and that's that's part of their job is to say, hey, keep yourself yeah. in check. We don't yeah. want to like blow our whole field into something ridiculous, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Mm. yeah. No, it, it, you have some interesting points. Like I, can I not retract my rant, but like, no, no, weaken, I think weaken my rant to like I a see the mild of, annoyance. <laughs> I see the point of the rant. I, I, yeah. No, no. There's some. There's definitely some issues with the whole process. We can all agree on that. And I mean, the ideal situation would be that there was less limits with funding, and we didn't have to make. Yeah. We didn't have to always say, "Hey, my my sense is best." Like, I mean, again, as somebody working in basic research, I'm never going to convince Bill Gates to give me money. <laughs> but if I was working in C force photosynthesis, I he would. But yeah. Yep. It's hard for me sometimes to say, hey, my, my science is still valuable because without my science, you won't have your science. Um, something we have to work on. But this is more of an, I would say this is a, a capitalist problem. This is a, a problem of economics yeah. where like, I mean, especially with government money, they want to see a link to science making money very rapidly, right? So. Yeah. Yeah. And now um, uh, the cat <laughs> fact. Let's end on a, on a cat fact. Uh, and it's actually a positive cat fact. Like we have, like they can sometimes mix, but um Finally, no more cat killing for research. Um, it's from an article from the Atlantic, and um, they were killing cats for research. Yes, I what? didn't know that. <laughs> That's to, not a positive fact. I didn't know that fact. No, but we we, we don't have to anymore um, because um, what they did is um, for toxoplasmosis research. You know, ah, yeah, yeah. It's a parasite that only can um, uh, sexually reproduce in cats and mm-hmm. nowhere else. Um, it can also be found in uh, in mice and other rodents and in humans, um, and it's a it's a disease like in in rodents. It makes it changes their brain structure so they can get, they get attracted to cat urine and then they, they go get, to, yeah they just like walk around in the in the open space and like hey come and eat me cat and yeah and the cats then yeah eat them and <laughs> then the cycle continues and the parasite reproduces is then excreted through a feces and then again can infect uh, other animals um the studies like there's all these stories about like that uh, doing the same thing to humans as well um that it changes our brain structure and we uh, get more attracted to cats according to this article there's some very shady evidence for that so it doesn't really yeah i think it's like this chicken and egg situation it's like oh people who have cats are more likely to have toxoplasmosis and therefore are also more likely to be attracted to cats but it's like yeah but probably you have the bug because you bought the cat in the first place because you were attracted to the cat so which is which came first but uh, in humans, toxoplasmosis can be dangerous during pregnancy. Yes. Um, there, it's a very, like, it can uh, result to um, defects in a newborn child. And so, therefore, like, at least in, in Germany, it's standard practice. No, it's not actually a standard practice. It's a, you pay for it extra. But it will be offered that you do a toxoplasmosis screening. Yeah, we had the pre- idea that you should make sure that you've got it before you get pregnant. Yeah, because the new infection, getting a new infection during pregnancy... That's what's can, dangerous, yeah. yeah. And to research all of that and figure out how to fight toxoplasmosis, because I think you can't really treat it like when, when you have it, mm-hmm. um, they were doing research on them and they were uh, breeding cats and infecting them with toxoplasmosis uh, and then extract the, the parasite and killing the cats. Just, sorry guys Tegan just pulled out the plaque from our ball to sit up <laughs> sorry okay I put my hands on the table now two hands on the table hands where I can see them um, 
So yeah, so previously they um, had Bright to... Bright cats infected cats killed cats. Yeah, but now they, there is some new research uh, where they have a breakthrough where they understood why that is that cat they, the parasite can only reproduce in cats. And it's linked to um, the uh, acid content, the, no, the, the fatty acid content in the gut. Mm-hmm. And the cats, they... Um, so in our cuts, we co- guts, we convert uh, linoleic acid into other substances. Um, and that is also the case in most mammals and so on. In cats, however, um, they don't do that. They can still, they produce a high amounts of, or have high amounts of linoleic acid in their guts. Mm-hmm. And the parasite needs these high concentrations to reproduce. Okay. And now that we know that, we can uh, engineer pretty much mice to have similar conditions than cats in their guts and can reproduce the, the parasite in mice and then kill mice. And nobody cares about mice. <laughs> it's sort of funny. Um, then in the... In the article, there's a statement by a researcher that says no one wants to use cats in their research because killing cats is bad. But then, like, okay, now we can kill mice instead. I also, I feel like I've seen, like, a, a comment on this where, the, like, people saying we shouldn't shut this down. I don't know if it was exactly this one or something other an animal research sent. But, I mean, there's this idea that we should be using more and more models and less real animals because it's a bit mean. Um, but whenever I see these articles, it's always somebody else saying, hey, like, it might seem nice to not kill cats, but you know what's also not cool? Pregnant women dying because we don't understand and we're using these yeah. crappy models. So I think I've seen something, and I don't know if it was exactly this story, but something where there was like the rebuttal from somebody saying, this is a terrible idea. We yeah. should not be shutting this down. And last little thing about this is that um, cat food manufacturers, um, they figured already this already out in the 70s, the thing what? about the linoleic acid, not about the parasite. Okay. But so um, this idea that the content of uh, fatty acids in, in the guts is very different in cats from elsewhere, like was known since the 70s, but nobody made the connection until now that this is uh, that this has something to do with this parasitic life cycle. Okay. Um, and now they figured this out. They also fi- fi- uh, found the enzyme. Um, D6D is the enzyme that the cats turn off in their guts mm-hmm. while all other animals uh, keep it on in their guts. And now we can just turn it off in other animals and then reproduce toxoplasmosis there. Sorry, so mice. No more killing the cats. Yay. And that's it for our show. Um, I think we went a little bit long today. No, not too long, actually. It's fine. No, I think we were very chatty in the early one. And, um, yeah, so follow us on the social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram at Plants and Pipettes. On Twitter, we are at Plants Pipettes. You can also go to our website where we blog about different things related to plants and pipettes. It's www.plantsandpipettes.com. And um, our opening and closing music is Caravana by Philip Cross. And as always, if you want to, like, give us any feedback, tell us what you want to hear about, tell us what you want us to write about have comments or criticisms tell us how we were wrong or how we pronounced your favorite species or gene name wrong or completely misinterpreted something like please let us know we're happy to do some correction corners because for sure we make mistakes um but just get in touch on any of those mediums now i remember what i forgot to say last week is review us on itunes um give us five stars on itunes it helps us a lot i'm just checking um we have still the, just two ratings. Please oh. make it more. Please yeah. please increase the number um, to more ratings on iTunes. It really helps us being found. And that's it. Um, goodbye. Bye.